Dr. Roger Crisp, Uhiro Fellow and Tutor in Philosophy at St. Anne's College, Oxford, discusses the ethics of Aristotle. Dr. Roger Crisp, thank you for being here. Your work is in ethics and applied ethics. What sort of questions arise in ethics? What are the main issues? Well, I think you can, you can understand ethics as operating at three different levels. Perhaps the, the core level, the one that most people naturally think about, uh, you might call normative ethics. That is, questions about what we should do, what kind of people we should be. And uh, here we find philosophers developing theories sometimes about how we should live. So, for example, one very famous theory is utilitarianism, which says you should live an act to produce the, the overall greatest good, where the good is understood in terms of well-being or welfare. If we then step back from that and we start asking questions about those sorts of claims, uh, we're in the territory of me meta-ethic. So here there are questions about whether moral judgments are, can be true or false, and if so, what's the nature of that truth or falsity? Questions about moral epistemology, how we come to know these truths, if they're there to be uh, known. Questions also about moral metaphysics, questions about the status of moral properties, and how do they fit into the world? particularly the world is understood from a scientific point of view. Uh, and then, of course, there are more substantive questions in what people call practical ethics or applied ethics about different areas of our lives. So, for example, uh, many people think about what our obligations are in the developed world to people in the developing world, or what are our obligations to non-human animals or to future generations. Questions arise within reproductive technology. How should we respond to the possibility of catastrophe? Should we use genetics to modify our nature in some way? And are there ethical objections to that? These are all very serious questions. There must be a body of literature behind which you can start discussions. You've written extensively on Aristotle's ethics. Could you briefly tell us who Aristotle was before we talk about his ethics? Yes. Uh, Aristotle was born in 384 BCE in a place called Stagira, which is uh, in what is now Macedon, in the northern part of Greece. And he was rather clever, and at 17 he came to Athens, which was the intellectual uh, centre of Greece at that time. And he spent 20 years there with Plato, until Plato died. And Plato had, of course, himself spent time in Athens with Socrates. And I think one helpful way to understand Aristotle is to see him and Plato as working through a philosophical agenda set by Socrates before he was killed, or before he committed suicide in 399. Aristotle later left Athens and famously became tutor to Alexander the Great. Uh, he also founded uh, the school known as the Lyceum in Athens where students would have come to him from all over the, the known world to hear him lecture on a whole range of topics. We have millions of words uh, surviving from Aristotle's words, but um, in fact they form only about a fifth of the total amount that has been deposited in the, the library. How do we know that? I, just, I think through uh, the tradition and through the fact that there are numerous fragments right. or pieces which clearly would have been much larger. What was his work tended for, the bits that we've got? Serious philosophical study or wider application? Yes. Well, in a way, I mean, the, the discipline of philosophy didn't really 
exist as a discipline then? Aristotle was a scientist, and he was a biologist, he was a botanist, a zoologist, uh, he was a theologian. He, he really, in a sense, he, he's the founder of almost any modern discipline that you can, you can name. Well, as, as you've said, he, he's, he wrote extensively in many areas of philosophy. How important was his writings in ethics? Hugely important. Uh, almost immediately hugely important because his writings on ethics formed the basis for discussions throughout the Hellenistic period. He was immensely important in the development of Christianity and much of Aquinas' uh, work in ethics was uh, essentially based uh, pretty solidly on Aristotelian ethics. Now, after the this is a, a bit of a generalisation, but after the scientific revolution in as were the 16th and 17th centuries, Aristotle's ethics fell into a certain decline because, of course, his scientific works had fallen into decline uh, as well with the, the advent of new science and so on. But interestingly, over the last 40 or 50 years, there's been a return to Aristotelian ethics in philosophy. And in particular, a new, a new as it were, school of philosophy has developed called uh, virtue ethics. And many of the people there would claim Aristotle as their authority. What is this virtue ethics? Well, that's a good question. Very roughly, I, I think somebody would call themselves a virtue ethicist if they are making an important place for virtue in their account of ethics. So, for example, if you take a, an, a utilitarian who says, you should act to produce the greatest amount of pleasure, or the greatest balance of pleasure over pain, there needn't be any reference there to the virtues. But many people will start by saying, no, you've got to understand the, the nature of a virtuous character, and you've got to be able to give some substance to the to uh, the idea of virtue before you move on to asking questions about how we should act. And what did Aristotle say about virtue? Rather a lot. <laughs> I mean, Aristotle provides, I think, a very plausible account of virtue, according to which it's to be understood in terms of two kinds of disposition. The disposition to act in certain ways, and the disposition to feel in certain ways. And Aristotle noticed that human life can be understood very straightforwardly in terms of certain spheres. And most of us have to act or feel within these spheres at some certain times. So, for example, most of us at some time will have money, and there will be others around who may have claims on that money. So we need a virtue to govern that sphere, and that virtue is the sphere of generosity. Most of us at other times will feel afraid, and there the virtue that governs the sphere will be the virtue of courage, and so on across different areas of life. He also, I think, recognised that the good human life is not very plausibly understood in terms of merely not doing certain things. So he didn't think of ethics as just a set of prohibitions, don't do this or don't do that, or don't feel this, don't feel that. You do have to do certain things, you do have to feel certain things at certain times. And that means that there are two ways that you can go wrong. So take generosity, um, which concerns the giving away of money. Virtue consists in giving away money at the right time to the right people for the right reasons and so on. Now you can, you can give away money at the wrong times to the wrong people, criminals say, who will do terrible things with it and so on. And that's one kind of vice. 
And that's what Aristotle calls a vice of excess. And this would be the vice of prodigality. But you can also fail to give away money when you should. When somebody asks you for money and they clearly need it and it's going to uh, a good cause and so on, uh, then very often you should give some money. And if you fail, that's another kind of vice. That's the vice of deficiency or meanness. Of course, you can combine them. As Aristotle notes, many people are both prodigal and mean because they give away money when they shouldn't and then they don't have any money left when there is somebody to whom they should be. Would that then be a vice not to give away money you don't have then? Uh, Only because you've given away previously when you shouldn't have done. <laughs> that is a very good question. And I think Aristotle's answer would be that you are responsible for, for putting yourself in that position. If you're just poor and you don't have any money to give and it's not your fault you're poor, he wouldn't blame you. What does he, he focus more on, virtue or vice? He focuses much more on virtue. He... It's well worth reading his book, uh, The Nicomachae and Ethics. The book consists in some fairly abstract philosophical arguments to start with, but he then gets into some rather detailed portraits of what virtuous people are like. I would say with a view to our understanding what those people are like, but also with a view to making their lives attractive to us. So there's something slightly unrealistic about it, because he just, he, te- he as it were, he talks about ideals and paradigms. So the generous man. It is always a man that he talks about, the just man. And there's a sort of lack of well-roundedness there, I suppose, though he does have views on how virtues all fit together. Those portraits, I think, are something uh, lacking in contemporary philosophy. People tend to be much more interested in the abstract argument rather than describing in detail what particular virtues and vices uh, consist in. Though, of course, there are exceptions to that. Which would be more important, doing a virtuous act or not doing a misdeed or a vice? In a sense, there isn't really a distinction, because as you go through life, there will always be a right way to act and a right way to feel. Now, Aristotle will be the first to admit that there's a certain range there of acceptable ways to act and to feel. So you can't be precise and say you should give £40, 30 pence on this particular occasion. It'll be, you know... Something between thirty-five and forty-five pounds, something like that. But there will always be a, a right way to act and a right way to feel. And if you don't do that, you're just getting it wrong. We've we've just mentioned that failure to act is a vice. So virtue must be translated into action. Why why are virtuous thoughts not necessarily that? That's a very interesting question, and I think I think that Socrates and Plato differed from Aristotle on that, as far as we can tell. Because, of course, Socrates didn't write anything, so we have to reconstruct his views from what Plato says. But their view seems to have been that the mere possession of virtue itself is worthwhile and admirable. Aristotle says that, really, the possession of virtue in itself doesn't add up to much. And he has an example. He says, imagine somebody who's in a coma for the whole of their life, but is is, is virtuous. There isn't a great deal we think particularly valuable in that life. Myself, I think that's a mistake, because I think many people would say, well, actually, there is something admirable just about the possession of virtue. So even if somebody is in a coma, if it's true that they're virtuous and they would be virtuous if they came out of a coma, that's something admirable about them. But that's, that's not to say that, of course, exercising the virtues might not be even more admirable, admirable or more significant. 
Now, I think Aristotle took the view that the exercise of virtue was so important because he really wanted to ground the idea of virtue in his theory of happiness. So he thinks that really you should be trying to live a happy life and he seems committed to the idea that living a happy life is not something passive. It's going to involve your acting in certain ways. And because he wants virtue and happiness to come together, he's led to the position that exercising the virtues is what really matters. This leads me to think that happiness is then drawn from your external actions on other people rather than any internal sense of virtue. The value of exercising the virtues for Aristotle, you're quite right, doesn't come from any sort of buzz that it gives you or any feeling of contentment or any, any internal state. Nor really does it come from the benefits that you bring about for other people, directly anyway. It comes to you through the value of what he calls nobility, or in Greek, tokalon, which has a sort of aesthetic flavour to it. It's translated as nobility or, or fineness. And his view seems to be that the best life for you will be the one that is most, most noble or most fine. And that will consist in your benefiting other people and your being in a certain state, but the value comes from, comes from the nobility. Does he have any general rules for how one should live a life, or is it all individual based on individual circumstances? Ah, well, there's a bit of a debate about that. I mean, some people would see Aristotle as almost what you might call a situation ethicist, who says, you know, you've got to be there. There aren't any rules. You've just got to make up your mind what to do at the time. I don't think that's right. If you look at chapter 2 of book 9 of his ethics, which, which many people seem to pass over, it's rather interesting. He's discussing in that ch- chapter the obligations that we have to relatives of ours. And he asks some imaginary questions. So, for example, should you repay a debt to a friend? Well, yes, you should. Should you repay a debt to your friend if at the same time somebody who's kidnapped your father is asking you for a ransom? Well, no, you shouldn't, and so on. And at the end of the chapter, having considered some of these bizarre cases and given answers to uh, what we should do with them, Aristotle says, look, it's very complicated thinking about these cases, but we should think about them and we should try to get as many precise rules as we can to help us. But, of course, there will be a major role for what he calls practical wisdom, that is, the, uh, the capacity to see what is called for in a particular situation. And that is something that you cannot get through the mere application of rules. How would one develop this, this practical wisdom? Do you need to have studied for many years, or is it something innate? Can you develop it over time? Certainly it takes time. It requires you to have been brought up in the right way. So you have to have been brought up with what he calls the first principles. That is a sort of basic understanding of what generosity is and what justice is, what it is to be bad tempers or good tempers, and so on. It also requires you not just to have this um, this understanding, but to have lived life. So you learn by doing, according to Aristotle. So by finding yourself in certain situations where you have to do what the virtuous person would do, often under instruction from others, your parents or your teachers or whoever, it will become almost second nature to you to do the right thing in certain cases. As you get older, you will develop this, this capacity that you believe human beings have to understand the reasons for doing these things. 
And what, and once you've done that, then you will be a fully virtuous person. Does he advocate any punishment for failing to be a virtuous person? Yes, you'd have to read the politics to get a full account of what he thinks on that, on that. But his general thought is that a good legislator will be legislating for virtue. And if that requires punishing people, then that's what has to happen. Would he go along the lines of a philosopher king imposing on the society to live? He doesn't think much of Plato's Republic, which is governed by philosophers. And these are philosophers understood as intellectuals who really haven't got their hands dirty. Right. They're just understood, and then they apply their understanding to the world. But on the other hand, he does think that philosophers are, would often be quite wise to take part in uh, the politics of their cities. Not not just because this will have a good spin-off for the city and the citizens within it, but because politics itself, the practice of politics, is a way of exercising the virtue, so it will benefit the philosopher to do that. Now, then of course a serious question arises, and this dilemma becomes particularly stark towards the end of uh, the ethics when he when he returns to um, considering the importance of philosophy. How should I live my life? Should I be a philosopher or should I be, uh, should I, should I engage in politics? And people differ on that. I mean, my take on that is that this is a case in which Aristotle would say, well, it depends on how good a philosopher you are, how bad the political situation is, how good a politician you'd be, and so on. But I, I can imagine situations in which he'd say even quite a good philosopher, or, you know, by philosopher, I mean just somebody who's an intellectual, including a scientist, uh, there could well be situations where somebody who's quite, who is quite distinguished in those fields should nevertheless give it up and turn to politics. Would that be exercising virtue? And that would be exercising virtue. And it could be exercising virtue in such a way that they will be made most happy by doing that. Aristotle spoke of finding the optimum balance between excess and deficiency. How do we discover where that balance is? Through experience. And only um, through experience. Well, through experience and reflection. And after he's, he's outlined his so-called doctrine of the knee, which is this thing to do with excess and moderation and deficiency, in Book 2 of the Ethics, he ends that book with some helpful advice on how to apply the doctrine of the knee. Because he says there's no point in learning about ethics unless you're going to apply it to your own life and become better. He's assuming, I think, that he's, he's speaking to people in these lectures, because that's what they are. He's speaking to people who are not yet fully formed as virtuous or vicious. So they will find the doctrine of men useful. And he says, for example, human beings tend to be more attracted to pleasure than they should be. So steer away from that. Steer away from the, from the extremes which you're most attracted, and you'll probably find yourself more likely to hit the target. So it's a bit like when you're shooting an arrow and you take into account the direction of the wind. You shoot off target and chances are you'll, you'll hit the target. And in fact, Aristotle's metaphor for life is often put in terms of archery. But I think it could be said that the role of the doctrine of the mean is solely in that period in which one's character is developing and one's undergoing moral education. By the time you are uh, a fully virtuous person, it could be that the doctrine of mean will no longer be of use to you. What if you've moved beyond this stage and you haven't really developed a sense of doctrine of the mean? Yes, then you'd be in trouble. And Aristotle is rather pessimistic about people who've become vicious. And at times it almost sounds as if there's not much you can do. So, for example, he uses the metaphor of becoming sick. And he says, look, there's no point in wishing to be healthy if you've ignored the doctor's advice and you've become sick. It's too late. 
He says it's like throwing a stone. Once you've thrown the stone, it's too late. You can't wish it back into your into your hand. But myself, I suspect that he would have recognised that through a certain amount of effort, people could, as it were, improve their character, probably with the assistance of others. So, you know, sick people can become healthy. If you throw in a stone, you can go and pick it up. 